0: Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. And when we don't have the freedom
1: to let our bodies move through the cycle of stress or from autonomy to connection and back to autonomy and back to connection or from action to rest, back to action, back to rest, that's when we burn out is if we get stuck.
0: That's Emily Nagoski, co-author with her sister Amelia Nagoski, of the great new book Burnout, which explains why women experience burnout differently than men and what women can do to minimize stress, manage their emotions, and live a more joyful life. They're quite the sibling duo. Emily is the author of the New York Times bestseller Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, and Amelia is a professor of music and a conductor in the competitive field of classical music. I asked Emily and Amelia to be on the show because let's face it, death and dying are incredibly stressful moments in our lives. And many women are in the role of caretakers to the old and sick, which can lead to feelings of being overwhelmed, powerless and exhausted, and you guessed it, burned out. If you've ever felt that way, and honestly, who hasn't? Please listen to today's show. You'll learn about what you can do to deal with the impact of stress on your body how to recognize and manage human giver syndrome, which makes you feel simultaneously responsible for everything and also inadequate, and why rest and human connection are the key to recovering your sense of humor and preventing burnout. You'll also learn why babies love to be bounced in time. So Emily and Amelia, welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm really thrilled to have you on the show. Yeah, you know, I think that your new book, Burnout, is such a great tool for people who are dealing with the stress that comes with helping people who are old or sick or dying or preparing for their own death. I mean, talk about a stressful situation, right? And also one that's incredibly isolating for a lot of people. So I wonder if we could just start this uh, conversation and you could, by you telling us a little bit about why you chose to write the book. And helping people understand um, some of the key concepts in the book, one of which I think is the difference between things that make you stressed and the stress you feel in your body.
1: Uh, So it really started with my first book, Come As You Are, which is the sex book. It's about the science of women's sexual well-being. And there's this chapter in there about stress and feelings. Um, But after it was published, I was sort of traveling all over, talking to women about the science of women's sexuality. And after my talks, women kept coming up to me and saying, yes, all that science of sexuality, that's really great. But Emily, you know what really changed things for me was that chapter on stress and feelings. And I heard that over and over and was like, I really thought the sex science was going to be the important part. Um, So I told this to Amelia, who said,
2: Uh, Of course, that seems perfectly natural to me. I was not surprised at all. Because I am a musician and I uh, went to school at a music conservatory where one of the things you actually spend time learning is how to get in touch with and feel and express your feelings for performance purposes. So now as a conductor one of the things I do is I teach my students how to feel their feelings. Basically I know that it's difficult and that people it does not come naturally to people. You have to it's a learned skill. And even when I learned it I was only learned it for stage and I didn't realize that I could and it might be helpful if I did use it in my actual real everyday life. And when I did learn that it literally saved my
0: life twice. So what can people, so help help my listeners out. Like, what do they need to do? I mean, what do they need to pay attention to? And what are some tools that you teach in the book for people who are facing stressful situations and may not even be aware of the toll it's taking on them?
1: Yes. So uh, this is Emily. Um, as you were saying, the first thing to do is to recognize that there's a difference between the thing in the world that causes your stress and the physiological stress response cycle itself. So there's the events that cause our stress are things that our brain interprets as stressors. And this is all sorts of things from actual literal threats to our lives to things that we anticipate as being threats, things that are just sort of threats that don't yet exist but could exist in the future. So when we worry, borrowing stress from the future essentially, and uh, so these things, our kids and traffic and our bosses and the patriarchy and caring for sick parents and just sort of the existential dread of being alive in the 21st century, activate a stress response, which is this physiological process designed to help us survive short stressors like being chased by a lion, right? So being chased by a lion is a stress That's only supposed to last uh, a few minutes because there's really just two outcomes. Here comes the line. Your body floods with adrenaline and cortisol. It suppresses your digestive system, your immune system, your reproductive system, and either... get eaten by the lion, or, and and if you get eaten by the lion, then, you know, the rest of it doesn't matter, or uh, (laughs) you survive, you escape, you make it all the way back to, like, your village, and someone's like, hey, come into my house, quick, 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 and you run in, and they slam the door, and you eventually, the lion gets bored and walks away, and you have survived, and that is a complete stress response cycle, where you feel relieved, you're glad to be alive, you love your friends and family, alas, we are almost never chased by lions. And because of that, our our stress response lasts much longer than the few minutes that it's designed to last. We are not built to stay in that state forever. So just one simple example of what happens to us as a result of this, our blood vessels, for example, are designed to handle like a gently flowing stream of blood moving all the time. During the activation of the stress response, our heart rates increased and our blood pressures increased. So instead of like a gently flowing stream, it's a fire hose of blood. And if you don't get to the end of the stress response cycle, if it stays in that elevated state for too long, you stay in a state of elevated blood pressure, which causes wear and tear on your blood vessels, which gradually over years causes heart disease and then early death. So we're in this strange place where our physiological stress response ends up being more dangerous for us than whatever it was that caused the stress. Like, traffic, rarely gonna be lethal to us, but the stress response, if we don't complete that stress response cycle, uh, can gradually kill us. Um, because like, so if you take the example of traffic, you know, you're sitting there in your car, gritting your teeth and like you're sort of filled with thoughts of wanting to thr- strangulate people or whatever. When you get out of the traffic, are you like suddenly like, yeah, I feel great now. I'm out of the traffic. Hooray. I mean, if you're like me, you get out of the car in your own driveway and slam the door and are like, Right. Your body is still in a stress state. Even though you've dealt with the stressor, you got out of the traffic, you have to do something else separate that deals with the stress response in your body, something that will complete that stress response cycle.
0: Let's talk about completing the cycle. Um, What are things that people can do when they are in a constant state of stress. And also, I have to say, I feel very seen here, like my life. <laughs> last 23 years since I had kids and graduated from law school has been pretty much a continual stress response. So uh, you're definitely talking to me here.
2: Yeah. So this is Amelia. The number one thing that your body is preparing you to do is to run because that's how you escape the lion. So your body knows what that means. It knows this is escape. This is safety. So if If this is an option for you, physical activity is a really efficient way to complete the stress response cycle. How much and how often is the question people ask a lot. And the response, of course, is how much and how often do you experience stress? Like all day, every day? Can you exercise all day, every day? You probably cannot so happily. Um, We have a whole big long list in the book of other things you can do. But just to kind of run through the highlights, A good night's sleep can complete the stress response cycle. One thing people really like from the book is the 20-second hug. Uh, Which is exactly what it sounds like Uh, you support your own weight stand over your own center of gravity for example And put your arms around someone that you love and trust enough to hug for 20 seconds It is an awkwardly long time to hug someone unless you really like them Uh, It could get awkward unless it's you've picked the right person if you pick the right person Then during the course of that 20 seconds you can feel your heart rate slow You can feel your blood pressure decrease serotonin and oxytocin get released into your brain and you feel those happy lovey-dovey feelings and your body learns that it's safe.
0: Is that something you do with musicians? I'm just imagining an entire uh, choir hugging each other before they go on stage.
2: Uh, because it's a large social situation, a choral rehearsal. No. <laughs> no. There's, the, uh, there is a thing where people who sing in a choir together feel like family. When you make music together – you bond in ways that are more profound than just attending some other kind of class together. I actually taught a class called the Music Making Mind, which is basically a music psychology class, but the intention of that particular class was to compare academic ideas about music psychology with students' experience being musicians who who perform together. So like one day a week, we would study the history of music psychology, music education, music cognition. And then the other day a week, we would play instruments together and sing songs together. And by the end of the class, they reported to me that they really felt differently about the other members of that class than they did about members of other classes that they were in, where all they did was sit in the same room and take notes together. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Well, that actually gets to another theme of the book that I think is really relevant to this situation, which is the importance of connecting with other people And how that can help reduce the feeling of isolation and stress that people feel in these tough situations. And I know around death and dying, a lot of people that I work with, you know, when it happens to you, it's like it's never happened to anybody else. And we don't sit around in our culture too much and talk about the pain of losing a parent or the confusion of having a parent, you know, drift off into dementia. There's not a lot of lateral communication between us around something that's universal and ubiquitous and that we all share. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the science of connection.
1: Boy, howdy. You said the word isolation. It like resonated this really big bell in me because as we were reading the research and doing like writing the book, ah, man, we did not want connection to be the answer. <laughs> Like we were raised in this really dysfunctional family where we were intentionally separate. We're identical twin sisters, but our parents didn't want to make didn't want us to be like too connected to each other. Um, we were raised like an emotion dismissing family where we're not allowed to feel our feelings, and we certainly we talked to each other about our feelings, and we sort of believed this cultural myth that uh, a true grown up doesn't depend on any people for any of their own needs. The process of becoming an adult is a process of taking on responsibility for meeting all of your own needs. And if you rely on other people to help you with anything that's weak and shameful and an indication that there is something wrong with you. And we read all this research just in every possible domain. I was particularly persuaded by the neuroscience because of course I'm persuaded by the neuroscience. Um, There's a brand new field called two-person neuroscience that found that we are all walking around constantly co-regulating each other. So my physical presence in the room changes other people's brain patterns and their physical presence in the room changes my brain patterns and the ways we interact with each other shapes our own mood and cognition. And as Amelia was saying, the experience of shared emotion, shared movement, shared physical movement helps us to feel aligned and calm and safe in a way that goes far beyond just hearing from someone else that they went through the same experience as you or that they've experienced something similar. That's valuable. But the experience is way bigger than just knowing you're not alone. It's the physical experience of not being alone. It transforms our lives. It heals our bodies from the wear and tear of whatever it is we have come looking for connection around.
0: Can you give an example of that outside of the music context for my listeners? So in the context of like caring for somebody who's sick or grieving for somebody who's died, what what kinds of physical connection can you... Imagine there that would be helpful for people.
2: Uh, This is Amelia the way Dan Siegel. um, He's a Adolescent psychologist actually and talks about brain science related to kids, especially but one of the ways he describes How this works is his definition of the mind is that it's a process that is embodied and relational So who you are takes place inside of your skin. That's what embodied means. And it's also relational. So who you are is also defined by the environment you interact with, the other people who are a part of your life. So if someone is a part of your life all day, every day, that person is very literally a part of you. Your identity is absolutely tied to your interactions with them. So when you lose someone from your life who you've interacted with every day especially over your entire lifetime you don't just lose something outside of you it's not like losing your wallet it's not something that that's just extra and outside of you the environment you interact with and the people who you spend your time with genuinely are part of you so you feel when you lose someone close to you like there's a hole in your heart like there's a piece of you that has become that has gone missing and that is literally true uh, it doesn't have to be a, an intentionally bonding experience like coordinated movement in time or or a very specific kind of team-building exercise with a shared purpose. When you live your life with someone and they're a member of your family, that's that's it. That's enough. That's all you need to, to build that bond that makes their presence part of your mind. But talk about the healing. Amelia, Amelia,
0: Amelia, talk about the healing thing because... Right. I mean, because I think people are pretty clear on the sense of loss, but um, let's talk about some ways that people can heal from that or or use some of the science in your book to help themselves cope with that. The magic trick.
2: Yeah. This is it. This is the thing you do for a living. <laughs> right. So um, the magic trick Emily is talking about, the, the, the way that you heal from this sense of loss is to use everything that is the most fundamental parts of what being a human being means, and that is connection with other people, coordinated movement with a shared purpose. Obviously, this is really easy for me because I am a musician, and this is what I do with my time: is I stand in rooms with people, and we make noise together, and we feel feelings together, and then we put on a concert, and we all feel we've achieved something wonderful. But it doesn't have to be that. Um, you can get this same magic trick through any kind of shared movement with a Uh, Shared goal like playing sports together even watching a game together with other fans in front of the TV is Will get you a taste of it Of course if you can really engage in the physical activity and make the thing happen yourself That's more effective, but dancing singing worship any kind of religious practice That happens in a shared space with other people that involves praying chanting uh, recitation, sitting, standing, kneeling, all in time together, those are all rituals that are designed to take advantage of the most powerful parts of human experience of coordinated movement in time with a shared purpose.
0: Right. It's interesting that you use the word ritual because that's where I was thinking you were going, which is these rituals around death and dying that we've lost in this culture that can bring a lot of comfort to people. So it's interesting that the science supports the power of that kind of collective engagement. So that's interesting to me. Yeah.
2: Yes. I was surprised by that too. This is Amelia again. I, because I work backstage for these kind of rituals. I've been a church musician most of my adult life. I work in academia. So I put together the ceremonies that, you know, usher 18 year olds from their childhood in high school out to their graduation when they officially go become a, I've seen all that backstage. So I wasn't really a believer in it because I've, you know, I've, I've seen the mechanics of it and I've never been an outsider so that I could experience it just without knowing what it is and be swept up by the magic of it. That never worked for me. So I really did have to be convinced by the science. And once I knew, oh, this is why that works, I was able to, well, first of all, it made me a better creator of those kinds of events and better at shaping ceremonies that would really be more powerful for the people who are participating in them. But it also allowed me to, it kind of gave me permission because the science said so. It gave me permission to let myself be swept into how powerful the ceremonies are.
0: Can you can you back up and talk just a little more about the science that supports that? We sort of jumped right into the magic trick, but maybe slow down a minute and talk a little more about the science that you're referring to. I think
2: it's babies like to bounce but so let's go back to the science of like why babies like to bounce and why this coordinated movement actually works we do not know exactly what the brain mechanism is that's making this happen we suspect that it's not about the part of your brain that's encased in your skull it's probably about the embodied mind about the fact that your whole nervous system is your brain your brain is a cluster of neurons inside your skull that extends to a larger system that reaches all the way through your entire body. So your knowledge and understanding of the world comes to you not just from your eyes and your nose and your mouth and your ears and the senses that are up by that cluster of neurons in your skull, but through the, the neurological system that extends down to your toes and your fingertips and of course your vestibular system, which, uh, which among many other things um, is influenced by movement. Uh, and of course the fact that your mind is relational and so you're also connecting with other people. So here's where this comes from. In the archaeological record we know that human beings as a species have been making music for as long as we have been humans. The very first kind of campsites that have been dug up and studied have musical instruments, or like flutes and drums, so we know that people have been making music as long as they've been people. Why? Why do we do this? The, there are some lots and lots now of research that shows that when you bounce a baby in time, one, two, one, two, bounce, bounce, babies like to bounce, so you all bounce together. When babies bounce synchronously with another person, they are much, much more likely later on to help that person in a way that they they observe, oh, I dropped my pencil, I'm gonna help you with that pencil. If you bounce that baby, I'm bouncing the baby, but I am bouncing at a different time than you, and the baby sees that another person is bouncing not synchronously, asynchronously, then later on when that person needs help, the child is way less likely to go help that person. So this kind of bonding However it happens, related to the embodied cognition or to spatial awareness or to some kind of relational mind neuroscience, uh, however it works, we don't actually know. But we know for sure that it does achieve the fact, it does achieve increased helping behavior.
1: The technical term for this is the pro-social benefits of coordinated movement. So if people want to Google Scholar it and read, I mean, there's just like decades of research now about all the many pro-social benefits of moving our bodies in time together. And ultimately what it comes down to is the fact that when we share space and a goal and move our bodies, something happens inside us. And uh, we're still looking for research that tells us precisely how this happens within an individual and across individuals, but it is a thing for sure. And I was shocked.
2: Here's part of the problem with why we don't completely understand how it actually works. The way we study brains is mostly through fMRIs, and the fMRI machine is designed to look at how much blood flow there is in your head, and you literally stick your head in a machine. The rest of your nervous system, that is also where cognition and thinking occur, especially in two dense clusters of neurons around your heart and in your abdomen, literally you have kind of miniature brains in your heart and your abdomen, we don't have fMRI machines that measure functioning of those neural networks.
0: I'd like to switch gears to talk some about like, what burnout is, like you know emotional exhaustion and how you would describe it, and a little bit about human giver syndrome, because I think, again, women tend to be caretakers. Women tend to feel it's their job to fix everything, and I work with a lot of burned out women. How do you define burnout, and how do you know when you're burned out? Our sort of layperson definition
1: is that burnout is the feeling of being overwhelmed, and exhausted by everything you have to do while simultaneously worrying that you are somehow not doing enough. Do you know me? (laughs) (laughs) No, but this applies to literally every woman we know. If they don't feel it right now, there is some time in their life when they have felt this. In fact, real people out in the world never ask us, oh, your book's called Burnout? What's Burnout? Everyone has this intuitive sense of like, yep, I know what that is. Um, And it's, it's, the, in the technical research, uh, it's emotional exhaustion, uh, which comes from staying in a state of escalated emotional arousal. Whatever it might be, stress, that could be fear, it could be anger, it could be shutdown, it could be staying in a state of grief, in a state of vigilance, in a state of even intense love for too long. You wear out the circuitry. Because you've stayed in an elevated state, humans are not designed to stay in one state for a long time. We're not even designed to stay in a state of peace and relaxation for a long time. We're designed to oscillate, to move through natural cycles and rhythms of living in an animal body. And when we don't have the freedom to let our bodies move through the cycle of stress or from autonomy to connection and back to autonomy and back to connection or from action to rest, back to action, back
0: to rest, that's when we burn out is if we get stuck in one of those states. Okay. And a lot of women get stuck in those states because they somehow feel it's all their fault. And you both write about that really well. So can you talk a little bit about what you call human giver syndrome? And I have to confess, when I read your book, I was writing, yes, 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 in the margin.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Human giver syndrome uh, is a phrase that we excerpted a little bit from a book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, by a moral philosopher named Kate Mann. And in Down Girl, Kate Mann describes a world where there are two kinds of humans, human beings who have a moral obligation to live and be their full humanity, and human givers who have a moral obligation to give their full humanity to the human beings. And their full humanity includes their time, their energy, their appearances, their bodies, their very lives to others. Uh, And their responsibilities include being pretty, happy, calm, generous and attentive to the needs of others and you know you have human giver syndrome when you believe you should be pretty happy calm generous and attentive to the needs of others and that if you are not any of those things if you are for a moment not pretty if you are angry or sad or have a really strong intense emotion that makes you unable to be calm for a moment that these um, states deserve punishment because you have violated your moral obligation of how you're supposed to exist in the world. And these things were legally true uh, in the Western world until quite recently in history. And now they're just kind of unspoken truths that women are supposed to be this, this giver, the, the loving, happy subordinates to the beings.
0: So, uh, I mean, I know this is the $10 million question, but in your book, you do provide your readers with some strategies to combat the feeling of burnout that comes from having that kind of expectation about yourself. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the just really concrete suggestions you offer in the book for for women who who feel this way? Oh,
1: that's basically what the book is.
0: I know, I know, I know. (laughs)
1: So uh, one is uh, completing the cycle, which requires separating uh, your strategies for dealing with your stressors from your dealing your strategies for dealing with the stress in your body. Dealing with the stress in your body requires completing the stress response cycle and getting adequate rest. A primary barrier to getting adequate rest and letting your body go through the stress response cycle is uh, the belief that needing to do that makes you a failure because human giver syndrome. So. One of our suggestions is that you learn to recognize when your brain tells you, for example, if you feel guilty for sleeping. We have lost count of the number of people who told us, number of women, who've told us they feel guilty for sleeping. So our suggestion is that you notice that, you go, oh look, that's human giver syndrome, that's my culture telling me that I'm not allowed to have any needs, I'm not allowed to take care of myself, I have to constantly take care of other people. Recognize that, call it what it is, human giver syndrome, or if you like, the patriarchy, and say, you know what? If I don't get the rest, I'm uh, not going to be strong enough and well enough to care for the people I love or to smash the patriarchy that does not want me to be well enough to smash it. So it's actually a political action, and you can help to make the world a better place for the next generation by taking adequate care of yourself, granting yourself permission to care for your body. Does that make sense? Totally. I'm I'm, going to go to sleep right now. (laughs) I have a whole hour long talk this is Emily I have an hour long talk just about sleep like I am a sleep evangelist one of our favorite pieces in the book is you cannot spell resist without rest and the second is connection with people in the bubble of love who will uh, not reinforce all of these human giver syndrome ideas but instead share with you outrage about the fact that you've been exposed to all these things and long to participate in
2: caretaking with you in a mutual way. We
1: call it the bubble of love.
2: And number three, this is Amelia, uh, is when you have human giver syndrome, often there's a tension that exists between who you actually are and who the world seems to be expecting you to be, this pretty happy, calm, generous, attentive person. You can feel that you are somehow supposed to be that person, but deep in your heart, you are not that person. And the gap between those two realities means that a lot of women, all of us really, develop a coping mechanism. And we call, we name that mechanism, the mad woman in the attic. It comes from the book Jane Eyre in which spoiler alert, Mr. Rochester keeps his, his probably insane wife in a room in his attic. And, you know, when you really think about it, don't we all, we have this, part of ourselves that's just ridiculously frustrated that we cannot meet people's expectations because we are not these things that they want us to be, even if those things are kind of toxic for us. So when we, one of the most difficult and painful aspects of living in the patriarchy, living with human giver syndrome, is this internal voice, not even just the external criticism, but this internal critic who tells you that you have failed, who tells you you're not doing enough, who tells you you need to be pretty happy, calm, generous, attentive needs of others. And when you're not, she yells at you. She's so mad. There's a lot of advice kind of on the internet that what you should do is ignore that critical voice and just tell yourself, no, no, I am good enough. And uh, that does not work. <laughs> you can tell that it doesn't work because if you were in the position of that critic if you were really angry with someone because they had not done what they were supposed to do like imagine your kid runs out into the street and you're like i told you not to run out into the street why are you risking and and endangering yourself like that i told you not to do that if the kid goes i'm good enough and i'm just not even going to listen to you like that would just make it worse for you right wait do you know my son Yeah, so that doesn't work. That doesn't make the that doesn't make the madwoman less frustrated or less angry. So instead, you do what you wish your son would have done, which is turn to you and say, "What would you like me to know?" She's not helping you in a very polite way or friendly way or gentle way, and you maybe don't have to do what she tells you to do because she's a madwoman, and you sh- maybe you don't have to take everything she says carefully, uh, literally. But well, you can thank her for trying to protect you, for understanding that. Uh, you are in a dangerous situation and for trying to keep you safe.
0: Is there anything that you feel like I didn't ask that you'd like to, to share with people in this context, right? The context of helping somebody who's sick or dealing or grieving after somebody's died or actually just doing estate planning where you actually have to sit down and get real about the fact that everybody dies?
1: Okay, so I have to start with the movie Inside Out which is this like delightful little cartoon, right? But it's about these emotions that live in the mind of a tween girl named Riley. Joy is in charge and she knows what anger is for and she knows what fear is for and she knows what disgust is for, but she doesn't know what sadness is for. At the beginning of the movie, she literally draws a chalk circle on the floor and tells Sadness that her job is just stay in the circle and not touch anything. Joy doesn't understand what sadness is for. But toward the end of the movie, Joy is trapped in a literal pit because she's been trying to keep sadness away from everything. And uh, this is a place where, the the pit is a place where memories go to die. Uh, And she finds a memory of uh, the big playoff hockey game that Riley was playing in where Riley missed the winning shot. She felt awful. She remembers sadness taking over in this moment where Riley felt awful. She wanted to quit. But her mom and dad and the team came to help her because Riley was feeling sad because she was sitting alone in the tree expressing sadness. And Joy has this revelation that mom and dad, the team, they came to help because of sadness sadness is the beacon emotion. It is the bat signal. So many of us, including Amelia and me, were raised in families that taught us to put a smile on our faces, to be happy. Oh, everything's okay. And when as children, we get the message that our sadness or our other uncomfortable emotions are unwelcome, what that feels like to us is, hey, when you feel that way, it makes me the loved one feel uncomfortable and so what I need you to do is not have those feelings so that I can be okay and we start faking it. We start pretending everything is all right and hiding our sadness and our grief and our despair when that is the moment. Sadness is the bat signal. That is the moment when we must above all reach out and connect with other people. Recognizing that when we have that sadness that is the moment when we have to connect with other people Changes everything about our relationship with our own sadness and grief. Even the emotion of feeling like you're not enough. When we read the research, what we discovered was feeling like you're not enough is not about telling yourself that you actually are enough. It's a feeling of loneliness. And the solution of feeling that you are alone, that you are not enough, is to seek connection. It's the bat signal.
0: Yeah. You know, thank you so much. I mean, that is the purpose of this podcast really is to try to help people connect around the truth of the matter that all of us face this and all of us face it alone and all of us face it together. And we could do a better job in this country to support each other. We could hardly do worse. Yeah, right. So I so appreciate you taking the time to be on Life, Death, Law, and I wish you great success with the book because I think it's an important book and an important topic for not just women, right, but everyone.
1: Thank you. This has been delightful.
0: Thank you. You've just listened to my interview with Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski, the authors of the new book, Burnout. To learn more about burnout, please visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And to learn more about Emily's work as a sex educator and speaker, go to emilynagoski.com. And I'll post links to all of this on the show notes for today's show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's episode or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com, send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com or call me on the Life Death Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care. And remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye!